Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And today I'm really excited to have as my guest, Jen Devine. She's a sex educator. She develops curriculum. She's a teacher trainer, a relationship coach, and sex ed consultant based in San Francisco. Her organization, Superstar Health Education, has a team of sex educators who specialize in puberty education and inclusive, comprehensive sexuality education. She teaches about 2,000 students a year about genitals and gender and all things to do with human sexuality. She has her Master's of Divinity degree specializing in human sexuality. Welcome to the show, J.D. I call her Jen Divine. I call her J.D. Welcome, J.D. Thanks, Sumati. It's really great to be here. I'm super excited to talk to you. So glad to have you. Um, So let's first start talking about your orientation to open relationship. Uh, What label do you typically use when you describe yourself? Um, I often say I'm in open relationships, or I say I'm polyamorous, or sometimes I don't even use a label. I might say, um, well, one of my partners, and just use the plural to let folks know that there might be more than one person in my life who I'm um, connected to in an intimate or loving way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what? how did you first learn about open relationships and realize that you wanted to do that? <laughs> Well, I I actually don't know if I like there wasn't sort of an aha moment. I grew up in a in a very uh liberal open-minded church environment. I have to say actually much of what I learned about sexuality and relationships um I learned from church and it was actually a very positive experience. Um my unitarian wow. universalist up, upbringing um had a culture of youth empowerment that um sort of one of the tenets of our gatherings that would happen we would get together on weekends you know 50 to 300 kids would join together from all over a region in a church um, and we'd have these things called conferences and the conferences were run by kids and teenagers 12 to 20 and the the ethic that I learned there about the nature of not being exclusive um, because it would detract from sort of uh, the community event was actually very much in, in alignment with the ethics of polyamory. So things like it wasn't that sexuality was um, looked down on in any way. In fact, it was sort of integrated into who we were as teenagers, but we were discouraged from sort of pairing off and like separating from the group in pairs. There was mm. a great sort mm. of emphasis on, you know, if you're going to hang out with people, don't exclude people. So if you're having a cuddle, like have at least five people in it because that <laughs> makes other people feel more welcome. Um, and so, um, you know, explicit sexuality at these conferences were um, sort of collectively agreed upon by the teenagers there that we were not going to be sexual beings at these events because that also could make people feel uncomfortable. Not that sex was bad or mm-hmm. in any way problematic, but it wasn't what we were intending to do at these events but the culture of intimacy mm-hmm. and the culture of like deep connection and the culture of sort of a group ethic was very much there so I mean when I say how did I learn about open relationships I think I learned about the the ethics of um, paying attention to lots of people being 
in love with lots of people. I mean, I'm still in love with half of these teenagers that I used to hang out with. Um, they're my best friends mm-hmm. all over the country. Um, you know, those ethics I think I learned there. So when I became sort of an adult involved in um, intimate or sexual partnering, um, it just seemed it it just was what I was doing. It was I didn't even have a word for it necessarily at the time. There wasn't the word polyamory being used in the early '80s, so. It, it just was what I was doing. I was hanging out with people and letting them know that I was also hanging out with other people. And as long as I was feeling honest and in genuine connection and relationship with people, that's what I was doing. And then at some point I was like, wow, there's a word for this. <laughs> you know, um, so, uh, you know, I, so I don't feel like it was a discovery. It was more sort of like part of my culture and maybe even, I might even say part of my inherent nature. Um, I do believe some people are more sort of wired that way. And just like some people are more wired to be monogamous or some people are more wired to be, you know, queer or or straight. We like it's, there's a part of it that is culture and nature. And part of it is like what's inherent in us. So, yeah. Um, You know, there were some books along the way that um, helped me learn about the ethics of that. So sorry. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Um, when you grew up in that culture of openness and inclusivity, did you ever come across where the greater culture, as you got older and you started to develop sexual relationships, did you come up against the greater culture trying to fit you into that box of monogamy? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, um, there were definitely people that, because I was not interested in being exclusive, were sort of, um, you know, relegated to like, well, I guess we can be friends then because (laughs) you're not going to be cool with hanging out with my girlfriend uh, who I already have. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, other, and also things like, um, things that people just take for granted. Like when I was working at an organization and they sent an invite to the holiday party and they're like, and here's an other invite for your partner. I was like, well, I'm going to mm-hmm. need two. you know, there are sort of <laughs> like these cultural norms that uh, people don't even think about that um, are, are based in sort of a monogamous lens. So I, yeah, of course I bumped into yeah, the that. whole, the whole um, plus one thing is I never thought about that before, but that's a really good point. The whole plus yeah. one idea is, is based on the, the mono um, default mode. Yeah, yeah, um, and and I think that there's also, um, well, being gay or lesbian, I'm also a queer woman. Um, you know, the and especially living in the Bay Area, it's sort of normative. I mean, it's like expected that people might be gay or lesbian or bisexual or queer. Um, <clears throat> and I still think there's still a, I mean, there's a stigma I think about being completely out for some people about being in multiple relationships. And I think I bump into this also just in general around, um, you know, a culture of sex negativity and erotophobia has, Mm -hmm. is built into that also. So, um, you know, the idea that uh, if, 
you know, many, for example, I work in school districts and, you know, many teachers are like, have a picture of their partner on their desk and that's expected or, you know, um, their family. And there's still a bit of edginess about letting folks know that you might have more than one partner because there's judgment about what that means. Um, And I think the judgment comes in around like, does that mean you're not able to commit to people? No, that doesn't mean that. It does that mean you don't have relationships of depth? No, I have wonderful relationships of depth. Um, does that mean that you're um, a person who's very slutty? Not that that's necessarily a bad thing if people own that word. Um, you know, person who likes sex is nothing wrong with that. So there's a little bit of challenge sometimes about where and when a person can be, you know, clearly out about that in a culture generally erotophobic and sex negative. Um, You know, also having worked in the ministry, I know that that's also true. There are plenty of gay and lesbian ministers who are out now and are like, yay, but there are very few that are like, I am poly also. (laughs) Um, Good point, yeah. A a certain stigma around that still, um, around what it means to have multiple loving relationships. Um, yes, there is a big stigma about that. I, I've noticed that since gay marriage became legal, that there's this acceptance in our culture of like, oh, as long as you find your mate, your one mate, and you're in love, right. then being gay is fine. Right. But if you're going to be slutty and gay, that's still not okay. <laughs> well, yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Um, or slutty and straight. Uh <laughs> And have Either way, right. <laughs> Unless you're a yeah. straight man, then it's okay. <laughs> right. I mean, there's right, and it also gets very gendered, and it also plays out very differently in different intersections of like race and class as well, um, mm-hmm. around stereotypes and stigma. So, it's still not an easy place when the culture is looking at, at that. Um, but it feels like a relatively easy place to be for me inside it. You know, it has an ease to mm-hmm. it that is um, wonderful. <laughs> well, yeah, I want to talk more about your work in a little, in a little bit um, and how you fit into the school system. Um, but before mm-hmm. I do, I want to go back a little bit more to some of the, the labels and definitions that you've mentioned. Um, so can you talk a little sure. bit about the word queer for our listeners that might be confused? Because it's one of those words mm. like slut that's been reclaimed, and I want to understand what you mean by the word queer. Well, so when it comes to you know what people call a sexual orientation, which also could be an attractional orientation because it isn't always sexual, um, many people are familiar with the terms like gay, lesbian, bisexual, um, uh, asexual person who's not interested in uh, romantic or sexual partnering, um, mm-hmm. straight. Um, I think queer is a term that gets used to mean in the sexual orientation realm. It means anything but straight. So when someone mm-hmm. says they're queer, we don't know necessarily if they who their possible attractions are. We don't know if they identify as lesbian, bi, pansexual, omnisexual. You just know that they're not straight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, queer also. And so, why does that word? Uh, in a, why? Why do? I'm assuming that you feel empowered using that word. 
So can you, yes. can you talk a little bit more about why that word feels empowering to you? Yes. Um, back in the 80s, I think I originally came out as bisexual, um, and that was a way of making sense of my attractions to people who are of the same gender as me, as well as people who are different genders from me. Um, mm-hmm. As I've gotten older, that term bi has a little bit too much binariness in it, with the assumption that you know, there's only two genders in the world and people who are transgender or gender fluid or people who live in the in-between non-binary world of gender, um, that term bi doesn't quite fit. I have periodically dated people who strongly identify as lesbian. And it during those times, by default, but by by association, I get assumed to be a lesbian. And I also do date uh, cisgendered men. So queer for me em- embraces the umbrella of all of that. Mm-hmm. So rather than mm-hmm. explaining all of that, saying like, well, I used to be bi and I'm sometimes a lesbian, but sometimes I still have partnering <laughs> with men. And, you know, but some of those men are trans guys. So, you know, it's, it's just a lot easier to just say, well, I'm queer. <laughs> um, and it feels very, um, you know, it also leaves people guessing a little bit and that's fine um, because while labels are helpful and um, can be empowering modalities, sometimes there's also, um, it's nice to not put something so clearly into a box that um, leaves people lots of room to be like, oh, wow, I have ideas and questions about that. So queer right. for me leaves people guessing in a way that I like. Um, and also right. gives me a lot of like opportunity that... to move in a way that feels comfortable right, to me. exactly. Got it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, And I've asked several people who use the term, like what it means to them and almost everybody who uses it for themselves has their own unique explanation of the word. So it's very flexible Mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It also can be used to describe gender, like being gender queer, um, Mm -hmm. meaning messing with this, typical cultural norms of how gender is expected to be expressed you know so I like mm-hmm. I do like to express my my displays of gender expression may vary from very very femmy to very very butch or very very masculine mm-hmm. to very very feminine to blending it up together and presenting myself in a way that the world would attribute to certain genders typically in a way that's very mixed so sometimes I use that term more to describe my gender expression as opposed to who I'm attracted to as well perfect well thank you for being so transparent about that um let's go a little deeper you you use the term uh, erotophobia that we have an erotophobic culture and you consider yourself a pleasure activist can you talk about how that shows up (laughs) in your life Um, This is an R-rated show. It's okay. (laughs) Oh, totally. Well, okay, but here's also part of the quandary. Because, you know, this is an R-rated show, I could go into great detail as to, like, what it is I do with my own body and my own genitals and other people's, and, you know, great detail about the intimacy of my relationships. And there is still, and because I'm a public figure, both within religious communities and within um, 
you know, public school systems, private school systems, and religious schools, there's this also this idea that I need to have like good boundaries because until our culture mm-hmm. is less erotophobic, less scared of the erotic power of that energy, less scared of sexuality, less um, problematically stigmatizing uh, our sexual activities, we have to, and we, we have to keep good boundaries. And so while you know, I know this is a rated R show, and I can totally share with you everything. I know that there are, will be school teachers or districts that listen in and all of a sudden go, wait, hey, I know too much about this person's sexual life, where, you know, that's mm, typically something I keep very private when I'm working in a public school. Nobody knows who, you know, what my orientation is. I'm actually, I come, I come from the sort of place of keeping a relatively blank, a blank slate. People can project all they want on me, but... You know, I try to not um, self-disclose too much personal information. It's just not necessarily appropriate. Mm-hmm. There are some sex educators for whom that's like actually part of the narrative is they explore and share who they are. Um, so I have to sort of say that ahead of time as I, you know, explore what does it mean to be like, you know, a pleasure activist and in an erotophobic <laughs> world. Um, so that being said, uh <laughs> Um, I think pleasure activism has sort of two big um, components for me. You know, one is my work in the public school system and in, you know, teaching children, youth, and adults about human sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. Many sex ed programs leave out, like, they leave out the clitoris. They leave out pleasure. They leave out orgasms. They leave out, like, the wonderful rushes of new relationship energy. They leave out the information about oxytocin and how it messes with your brain chemistry and makes it difficult to make good decisions. But, you know, <laughs> the, ple- the pleasure po- the point of, you know, sexual behavior and even, you know, the, the point of puberty is <laughs> becoming uh, reproductively, having reproductive capacity, even if you're not planning on reproducing because you're, uh, that's not on your list. Um, you know, pleasure is an important factor and it's, it's a super important motivator in the world. And I like to teach about that and I like to not leave it out. I like to affirm that masturbation is normal and that like people do it before they're born and they do it throughout life. Um, that orgasm is a really cool and wonderful experience that the butthole has awesome nerve endings. Um, you know, all Mm -hmm. these things that often get left out of, you know, basic sex ed information. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so there's that front on which I'm being an activist, trying to teach young people that its bodies are cool and neat and wonderful and pleasure is a big part of that. And then there's my own, Mm -hmm. like, personal field research, you know. (laughs) What am I doing in my own private life or in my own sometimes sex is public, depending on the nature of my experiences, going to events where sexuality might be a component of that. You know, what am I doing there um, that has to do like with the bringing up erotic... Fair or the I'm just gonna, When you said that it might be public, just for our listeners who might wonder, I'm thinking of, like, the events in San Francisco, like Gay Pride or the um, Folsom Street Fair uh, or even, like, I a, a consensual about, play uh, party. I mean, I'm thinking... Yeah, I was thinking more like a play party. I'm I'm thinking more like right, right. an event where gr- adults have decided to go and set a covenant of an agreement about how they're going to behave um, that has consent and that sexual behavior is expected and there are clear and wonderful ways that people navigate through that. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's my own personal field research in those environments that are is wonderful. Mm-hmm. 
to explore with myself and other consenting adults. What does that look like? How does that feel? Um, you know, what kind of good times are we going to be having and how do we communicate about that? Um, so, yeah, those right, are the two when, big when fronts, first, I think, that I do first, my work. Yeah, I mean, I knew you meant that, but when you first said public, I just didn't want our listeners to think that you were out on the street corner having sex with somebody. Oh, no. No, I was going to explain that, like, you know, it's actually a private event, but what other people might consider an activity that you would only do alone by yourself or with one other person, there are environments where groups of adults get together and decide they're going to engage in sexual behavior with one another. What that looks like can be varied and different. But, of course, the environment is one based on consent and is um, not in the public eye per se. But, yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I meant by that. Great. Yeah, I understand. So um, it's hard to to uh, not talk about your work, so let's let's go to that right now. Um, so tell yeah. me a little bit about Superstar Health Education and your work with adolescents. Um, well, I guess there's a little bit of a background. Um, I used to work uh, with uh, Planned Parenthood, running a team of educators around the Bay Area. And about eight years ago, um, sadly, our local uh, Planned Parenthood went uh, bankrupt. And as the education director there at the time, I, um, one day to the next was like, oh, I don't have a job. (laughs) And I have Mm. these great skills of talking about, you know, anatomy and physiology and STDs and healthy relationships. And, and there are all these schools that need workshops. So I created an organization. It wasn't out of, um, you know, uh, sitting down and creating a mission and vision and a business plan. It was, it was really out of necessity to be able to pay the rent and also to look at the needs, you know, where were, where did my passion meet with the needs of the world? You know, and I think that's in an ideal situation, what everybody's work becomes is where your passions meet the needs mm-hmm. of the world. Um, mm-hmm. So I have this organization it's called Superstar Health Ed. Um, I ran it by myself for um, six years or so, uh, primarily serving actually a lot of elementary schools. Um, our organization does, uh, puberty education that is uh, all super inclusive of all different uh, sexual orientations and family structures. We include transgender kids and intersex kids just as a part of the whole curriculum at all times, assuming that they may be in the classroom. Um, mm-hmm. We uh, in- include the idea of non-binary kids as part of our uh, programming. And we also cover you know, the basics of what changes happen for um, kids during puberty in a way that's that's fun and interactive and hopefully makes them feel good about their bodies and excited about the changes that might be happening. Um, we also do middle school programs as well as high school programs. And uh, just this last year, um, I hired a team of other amazing educators um, who work as consultants with me, um, providing more services to the greater Bay Area, and we now also have uh, programming in New York City, and we're looking to expand to Chicago, um, creating teams of educators in each of these regions that can provide um, comprehensive, medically accurate, shame-free sex ed um, in, uh, in on a larger scope. Um, you know, and the big dream, of course, is to eventually reach out to areas that don't get good sex education, which is a lot of the middle of the country uh, still mm-hmm. has 
um, abstinence only or abstinence-based education that leaves out uh, le entirely leaves out the queer community, um, is very heteronormative, often leaves out pleasure, is usually based on fear rather than accuracy, um, and probably doesn't even have accurate medical information. So my hope is eventually we can expand to that part of the country where we're really, really needed, um, and youth are being frankly neglected around their sexual health. And that shows up, um, that shows up in the public health impact that that has um, with unplanned teen pregnancies and skyrocketing STD rates um, in some of these areas that aren't getting good education, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, I'm so glad you're doing uh, uh, what you're doing, and congratulations on the expansion of your business. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> yeah, it's super exciting. Um, it's also terrifying um, <laughs> to be um, growing so quickly and sort of feeling like um, some of the growing pains of becoming a, going from being a sole proprietor to getting to be a bigger organization. And um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's exciting. And my part of my hope also is that it becomes a almost more of a collectively run organization where we really tap into the wisdom of the people who are the educators in the field um, so that we can stay current um, and, you know, have more minds contributing to the, the awesome curricula that we have. Um, yeah, it's exciting. Um, smart, very smart to tap into the collective wisdom because I'm sure people bring all kinds of different backgrounds to your team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I frankly, I'm a, you know, 50-year-old menopausal white lady, and I <laughs> have a particular lens and a cultural background Although I come from poor, uh, poor white people, I, you know, I have. It is important for me to have a team that's diverse and has different backgrounds than I do, um, and can be, you know, uh, different faces that show up in the classroom. Um, brown faces, black faces, faces from people from different parts of the world, different ways people express their gender. Um, so, you know, my team is is a very diverse group of. Uh, much younger people than I, and I'm really excited about the energy that they bring um, to the sex education that they're doing in the field. In fact, three of them are out in the field today working in the Bayview, so it's very exciting. Excellent. So uh, in the last few years, I've noticed um, some of your posts on Facebook where the young children that you're teaching puberty to have written these these amazingly heartwarming notes after your classes, um, can you mm -hmm. uh, can you just share some of those off the top of your head? Some of the things that they say to you after they've had a class with you. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, I wish I had some of those with me. Um, you know, they often say things like, "Well, at first I thought it was going to be like gross and weird, but actually I think genitals are neat and cool. Will you come back next week and teach us some more?" <laughs> You know, <laughs> um, or, you know, I I thought I wasn't going to be able to say any of those words, but now look at me, I'm, you know, able to say penis, vagina, vulva, clitoris, orgasm, yay, you know, so right. things, things like that, where, you know, the kids go from like, the expected cultural response, which is going, ew, gross, puberty, ah, I don't want to talk about any of this, to actually being like, wow, science is cool and bodies are neat, and this doesn't seem so bad, and I certainly don't feel as alone as I used to because everyone in the class is going through it, and it's totally normal. So, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's those are some of the kinds of responses I get. 
Yeah, I hope you'll make like a book of them someday because they're just adorable. <laughs> <laughs> well, Laura, I just hired, well, hired, I just um, got a social media intern um, from SF State's sexuality uh, education program, their master's degree program today, who's going to be um, helping us launch a YouTube channel that's going to be called Superstar mm. Answers, um, where nice. we, where, where our team of educators you know, read some of these questions that show up in our question anonymous question box, and we answer them, you know, matter-of-factly on this YouTube channel so that kids other places can actually get their questions answered as well. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. That is perfect. That. That's a perfect way to reach those areas that are so conservative. Yeah, and I mean, kids, that's where they're getting their information. And when kids turn to the Internet to get information, it's, as we all know, you know, chocker block full of probably not age appropriate, probably not accurate um, sexuality information. And so having a few places where kids can turn where they're actually getting good info from highly trained and educated, you know, sex educators who have their best interest at heart. Um, right. I'm, I'm excited about so that. You're, yeah. So your material, I would say, is, is pretty progressive. The fact that you're including mm-hmm. um, non-binary uh, people as just a matter of course and um, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, including the pleasure centers of the body. And um, mm-hmm. do you, how do you get so many schools to hire you? Is it because of the area that we live in? Um, do you run into people with more of a closed mind and you have to convince them that this is healthy or how is that process for uh, you to be able to get this into schools? Yeah. Well, I think I'm, I have to say I'm lucky to live in the state of California and the state laws, the Healthy Youth Act of California, which um, has been around for a while but was updated uh, about two years ago. Um, so the state laws education code is very explicit that it requires uh, the same kind of education that I'm doing, that it has to be medically accurate, shame-free, inclusive, um, not be biased toward any group of people, um, be not have any religious dogma in it. Um, so the state law is really is, is the foundation that allows this kind of education. In fact, requires this kind of education. Um, mm. The law has changed recently to even um, be stricter about um, the requirements that are geared to, more toward middle school, and also um, even more inclusive to ensure that things like um, we're talking about sex trafficking and um, uh, positive consent, like yes means yes. Um, all of these things are new parts of the law that um, sort of back up the very kinds of work I want to be doing out in the world. Um, so California mm-hmm. has laws that really help help us get into the into the classroom. Um, I and think so additionally. Did, did the, the... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, additionally, I think word of mouth is part of it. Um, San Francisco Unified School District has been incredibly supportive and awesome um, in working with us uh, on the puberty level um, because state law requires people to be trained to be educators in a classroom. So while some schools will do it in-house because their teachers are trained in human sexuality or puberty, um, many of the elementary school teachers are not. And so they really want to have somebody who's a professional come in and do that work. Um, when it comes to middle school and high schools, a lot, oftentimes the science teachers are trained. Um, it, whether that's good training or not, um, they are trained to um, teach 
sexuality at those levels. So, um, also just because so I how have did a you get degree in... in? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Finish your thought. I was just going to say I get into religious schools as well. I think because I have a master's degree in theology, I've served time as an interim uh, intern minister at Unitarian Universalist churches. But because I have that theological degree, I also find ways into religious schools, um, knowing how to work with a community that may have a faith base or a values base that they do actually want explicit in their curricula. So when working in a secular environment like a public school, um, of course, we keep it to the medically accurate and not trying to push any values on people. And in some of the private schools, they actually do have values that they're working on promoting. And I can understand that and work with those schools to help them incorporate some of their community or religious values into their own curriculum. So I, I think I have a unique place in that I get to work in religious schools as well. Yeah. And so did you? how did you go from Planned Parenthood to actually – providing your own private program in schools, did they already have programs and you just proved yours was better or did you have contacts in the school already from working with Planned Parenthood? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the the truth of it was I was let go. Well, all of us were let go. We were all told there will not be a paycheck and we all have to go because the doors are closing one day to the next. And so I left the office. I spent a day being like, wait, you know, crying. Uh, I love this job, uh, you know. Um, and then the next day I was like, well, I better go do something. So I called up a business insurance company, got business insurance, made up a name of a company, got business cards. And I called all the schools that I had contacts with and said, you know what? Um, sorry, Planned Parenthood isn't going to be able to come because we don't exist anymore in San Francisco, temporarily because um, our affiliate was closing. Um, but if you'd like, you can hire me <laughs> as superstar health education. And most of the schools are like, well, yes, we know and trust you as an individual um, apart from Planned Parenthood. So, ah, so you were uh, already working my... with the schools through Planned Parenthood. Yeah, I had a lot of connections through that uh, organization. Uh-huh. Um mm-hmm. And I'd been, fami- you know, I was familiar to many of the schools because I'd been working with the, um, what was also then, t- it actually turned into what was called Golden Gate Community Health. Um, and I'd worked with them for um, like five years. So, so I had a lot of mm-hmm. personal contacts there. Well, that makes sense because I was picturing you cold calling, knocking on the doors of schools, <laughs> pitch sex Well, I did that too. So- I mean, Did I you do, do that? that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, we're doing a new outreach campaign to 113 new schools in Alameda, Oakland, and Berkeley. So yeah, we wow. do that as well. Excellent, excellent. That's so great. Well, if you're yeah. just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. We're speaking with Jen Devine, who is a sex educator. Uh, owns an organization called Superstar Health Education that works with youth of all ages, teaching puberty education and comprehensive sexuality education. Uh, We're having a very interesting conversation about uh, teaching sexuality in schools and how uh, necessary that is to spread that all over the country and not just in the more liberal states. Um, You said you're expanding to Chicago, and I think you said New York. Do they also have similar laws to California? Um, 
the New York laws I am familiar with. I haven't actually expanded to Chicago yet, so I'm not as familiar with the laws there. But yes, New York also has requirements uh, for comprehensive uh, sexuality education. And there are some um, small alternative schools that we're doing some piloting with. Uh, we've worked with them last year, and we're going to be um, piloting again with the ALT schools, um, which stands for alternative schools. Um, they're small one-room classrooms with multi-age groups in them. And um, uh, they're, they're wonderful learning environments uh, for kids, and it's been really fun to um, to work with a school in another city. And I, I look forward to possibly expanding to create a team that actually serves that, that region. Awesome. Well, good for you. So let's yeah. go back to, um, and good for our country, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, thanks. Everybody needs to Because, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all the statistics show that the abstinence-only education, where that exists, there's more teen pregnancies, more STDs, whereas in places where there's healthy, scientific-based sex education, the teen pregnancy rate lower, et cetera. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There is a myth, I think, that if we tell teenagers like about sex and how it actually works and about condoms and how they work and about pleasure and how that works, that they are just going to go out willy-nilly and have lots of sex. In fact, the studies show that the more information you tell them about how things work and how the body works and, and safer sex and pleasure and the risks associated with some of the behaviors, the more you tell them, the more likely they are to delay sexual activity, in fact, Mm. Um, and when they do engage in sexual behavior, they tend to do so in a way that is much safer. So we know that, in fact, mm-hmm. information is an, ant- an antidote to risky behavior mm-hmm. for teens. And the, I mean, the crazy notion that, like, if you don't tell them anything and only tell them the scary things, that suddenly, magically, on their 18th birthday, when they become adults, they're going to be healthy sexual beings, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. is so ridiculous. It's like you scared scared them and given them misinformation, and then you expect them to engage in a healthy way as healthy sexual adults. It's like it makes no sense. Um, you know, and I, a goal of a parent, I think, is really to raise children to become healthy adults. And I would hope that also includes a healthy sexuality, a healthy respect of other people's bodies, a healthy understanding of how you work. And that's not based in fear. Um, so... Yeah, so that is why the center of the country and some of the places where abstinence only is the rule of the land have these high teen pregnancy rates, high STD rates, higher rates of abuse and non-consent because they just don't have good information. So, Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So I want to ask you, uh, do you also teach about polyamory uh, to young people? Yeah, of course. Um, it, it, I I do my best not to leave out anyone in the in the in the realm of human sexuality. So I know that mm-hmm. there are kids who are growing up in poly families. So as well as there's models that are much more accepted of sort of multi adult family relationships, like step parents and um, you know blended families where you know. There's a mom and a dad, and then there's the person who used to be the 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 child's father, but is still connected. You know, so there's all these other mm-hmm. models that are 
multi-adult relationships. So of course we include that in our description of how families can be, um, mm-hmm. you know, as well as being inclusive around all the ways families can start. Um, you know, when you ask a classroom of fifth graders, they are usually pretty good at coming up with all the different ways to start a family um, from sperm donors to in vitro to surrogates to foster kids to adoption to step parents to a penis goes in a vagina to, you know, they know all the ways. Um, mm-hmm. So when it comes to family structures, you know, they there's all kinds of ways that that can appear too. So I try to make room for so that. Uh, yeah, it's it's one thing to name fam- a, a polyamorous family structure, but do you go so far as to um, explain to them that polyamory is a viable option when they get older to choose for mm-hmm. their own relationship models? Yeah? Yeah. And there, you don't yep. get any pushback from the school about that? I don't. I mean, it's right now it's not written. I mean, to be honest, it's not written into the curriculum, the explanation mm-hmm. of all the different uh, constructs of family. But in any training mm-hmm. that I'm going to be doing with my educators, um, our job is to be comprehensive. And that is our state law. Mm-hmm. So comprehensive means we have to include all of those things. And that is good because some people are going to be um, consensual adult even teenagers are identifying as polyamorous and engaging in consensual multiple partnered relationships. So yeah, it does Mm -hmm. get brought up. It's less, it may be less, um, I might not use the word polyamory in a younger group because it's kind of a big word, but it might come up. Um, Kids will learn new vocabulary, um, but asking people whether they think it's possible to love more than one person, most people say, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Excellent. Well, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, talk a little bit about consent, but that's such a big topic. I think I'm going to have a separate show just yeah. on consent. <laughs> yeah. I read an oh, that would be exciting. About this, yeah, this Indian woman interviewed something like a thousand men in India, and most of them didn't even understand the concept of consent. Mm. Um, hmm. there, there's just so much assumption that men have domain over women's bodies that it wasn't even... They didn't understand what she even meant by consent. So, hmm. I mean, <laughs> I think really that, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think that is a uh, necessarily um, restricted to that part of the world. I think there's still mm-hmm. a lot of um, people in this part of the world where the c- consent is a concept that people don't fully grasp and what it means to say yes to something, what it means to um, navigate or negotiate to a clear and enthusiastic verbal yes. Um, you know, I I, I want to always caution how we, um, you know, bring up developing countries as a, examples of, uh, you know, something that might be negative around sexuality and how that that can have its own challenge and stigma that, you know, has to do with colonial concepts, too. So just want to watch that. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. I mean, yes, I, I appreciate I, that. I, I mean, I, you know, and I see consent challenges and violations all all over the place in how people understand um, communication around healthy relationships and boundaries um, with children and youth of all demographics and adults yes. for that matter. And what, absolutely. And what made me think about it was when you were, we were discussing um, proper sex education and the more we talk about and learn about sex and become comfortable talking about the body parts and talking about mm-hmm. what our options are to do with our body parts 
um, the more likely consent will happen as opposed to the default culture in America, which is yeah. the, women can't, the women can't own and accept that they might also want to be sexual. And so the man has to kind right. of try to get the first base, try to get the second base, try to force himself on that. And I had a date recently like that, somebody I met on OkCupid. I told him, you know, hmm. a light kiss with no tongue would be fine to, you know, at the end of our first date. And then he proceeded to yeah. grab me like Trump, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, what was that? This is, this is somebody who is supposedly, you know, a spiritual, yeah. you know, Northern California person. And I was just shocked huh. at uh, yeah. the, the inability that he had to talk about what we wanted and then actually do what we talked about. So yeah, right, it's very right. prevalent here as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. I'm sorry that I'm sorry that person violated your boundary. <laughs> yeah, it's just surprising to me. Anyway, so let's go back to um, talking about open relationships, um, which was sure. how we started. Um, so yeah. what, what do you find in your life is the hardest thing about it? Um, <laughs> managing my Google Calendar. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's that, the complexity of navigating, you know, time and energy and balancing, you know, work, social, um, and self-care and activism and art making and all the things that I like to do. Um, but I think one of the bigger challenges in the sort of relationship dynamic is like, um, I've dated a few women who are like, well, okay, cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm experimenting with like being open or yeah, I think I'm going to try to be poly. Um, and I'm like, uh, you know, I really like a firm commitment to the poly thing because it's, mm-hmm. it's hard when somebody's like, you know, they're, they're actually, they're saying they're being poly, but they're actually kind of playing the field and dating around until they find the one again. And that breaks mm-hmm. our little poly exactly. heart, you know, and mm-hmm. we're like, oh, right. but I really liked you and I really thought you were in it to win it. And I was really cool with your other mm-hmm. dating partner that you seemed really cool with. And now I'm feeling, you know, that you get you get dumped for people who are mo- people who are thinking they're poly, but then they go back to being monogamous, and that that bums me out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, I think uh, um, it, it, I think also the thing I brought up earlier about the you know the dynamics of like when are you out as a poly person, and what places is that safe and cool, and in what places will that be judged. Um, it's just another piece of it, um, mm-hmm. you know. And I think now, you if you know, don't mind me putting, yeah, jump in. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead, finish your thought. Go ahead. I don't know what I was going to say, so go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot a little bit, you don't have to name names, but I remember a few years ago you had a girlfriend, and um, <clears throat> they were having trouble with your poly lifestyle, and you had to end that relationship. Mm. Um, can you? describe that a little bit yeah um uh i think often the trajectory of somebody who is not necessarily comfortable with being poly um and then you know sticks with it often the trajectory in my relationship experience is that oh this becomes easier it's not as scary as i thought oh i really like your other partners oh you're really good at communicating um this gets easier and easier as I do it. How lucky are we? Um, 
that relationship it was sort of the, in some ways it took a different trajectory and i think it was because um at the beginning of the any relationship the level of intimacy and depth is not as intense right it may be lots mm-hmm. of fun right. new relationship energy but the like depth of mm-hmm. sort of connection and emotional deepness and realness might be not there so as that relationship mm-hmm. got deeper and more connected in some ways i think it it got harder for this other person, um, this woman in my life, to keep a, an open heart toward some of my other partners, um, because somehow depth, the depth made it, it brought up more issues for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. that was that was a unique experience for me, and it was a challenging relationship ending um, because of that, and some other factors as well. You know, I mean, like, I think it's really neat. Like, for example, right now I'm sitting in the backyard of one of my um, former lovers and, you know, she's standing there with one of her partners uh, and her partner has another partner. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, we're all friends. It's all good. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's great about it is that we can shift, you know, what who we are to each other over time and that we expect change. Um, that the majority of my former lovers are still very good friends and, or sometimes have shifted in terms of like, Oh, we're not like connected in terms of being partners on a regular, but we see each other socially and maybe even sometimes have, you know, sexual connections. And that's wonderful because we're able to communicate about it. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. hard for other people to understand. <laughs> It's not hard right. for me to understand, you know, it feels very um, lovely to have like a large community of um, current lovers and former lovers, all of whom I, I really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about your girlfriend as she got more invested in your relationship, that it was harder for you. So how do you handle um, the emotional risk and vulnerability and jealousy in your relationships? How do you manage that? Yeah. Um, I well, I think that one of the words you used earlier was uh, transparency. Um, mm-hmm. So what I what I love about um, well, I think this is a relationship dynamic that's in any healthy relationship, no matter what form it takes, is having the ability to be transparent about what's up. Um, and so if if you're able to be like, hey, I feel really vulnerable. I could use some reassurance. Or, oh, I'm having a feeling of jealousy. I really want to look at what that means and why. You know, like, I think that's um, allows, it allows you to navigate it um, more easily because you're not kind of holding your cards close in and you're kind of laying them out and saying, here's what's up. You know, how do we relate to that? Um, mm-hmm. So it, for me, um Vulnerability is a challenge, I'd say, because, I mean, that's just sort of more how I'm wired. I'm an East Coaster, and while I'm fun-loving and, you know, tends to be pretty honest when it comes to, like, deeply sharing um, emotional vulnerable space, that's, mm, I gotta really get to know you before I do that, you know? Um, (laughs) So, you know, having multiple relationships where, you know, that's on the table, I get to encounter my own, you know, fears of, of closeness and connectedness and intimacy and vulnerability. Um, and, you know, look at, look at why, you know, look at what that's about. Um, but I try to look at that as honestly as I can. 
and I really appreciate other people who kind of show up in that space, um, you know, with their with their ability to say, here's what's up for me. Um, jealousy, I have to say, I think this comes up for a lot of people who are poly, but I I don't tend to be jealous. I tend to be a person who has kind of the opposite reaction to um, people spending time with other people, which is like, that's awesome. How cool. I hope you had a great time. I mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that you're getting space um, to have pleasure and enjoyment with another person who's so different from me that I could pos- never possibly provide that for you. So how mm-hmm. great that is, you know. Um, the few times that I have encountered that, it, um, usually the antidote for me is reassurance, that the nature of the awesome relationship I have with that person where I'm like having a moment where I'm like, I'm jealous that you're getting this with someone else usually it helps just to have them remind me of the things they love and adore, care about, um, reassure me that our connection is still valuable and unique in whatever way it is, um, tends to make that subside in the rare times that I've had that kind of feeling. Um, it usually has to do with my own fear of loss. And then I look at that and Mm -hmm. say, Oh, wow, this person's not really going anywhere (laughs) They're right here, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, Mm -hmm. excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so before we run out of time, I want to also give you a chance to talk about what you love most about being poly. What are some of the, the best parts of it? <laughs> well, I know that when I'm old, I'm going to have the coolest old uh, nursing home uh, full of all of my friends and lovers and community um, that I will get to grow old with and uh, feel warm, warm, loving connections to people um i love that i get to uh polish up different facets of myself to interact with other people but um you know some people i just have like deep philosophical like intellectual relationships with and other people i get to have really hot sexy times with and um, some people are all about like emotional intimacy and I don't expect that any one person has to have all those things, um, nor do they, I think that I could be anyone, you know, be the all for anybody. Um, but I get to, like, f- find the different facets of myself and see how they show up with people. And I think it allows me to be more whole, you know, have my whole self uh, get to be explored. Um, and, yeah, Uh and I love that it's like based on honesty, you know, it's based on honesty and integrity and, you know, nobody's hiding anything from anyone. Um, ideally nobody's getting um, hurt because of lies or deceit there. There's a upfrontness about our intention and, um, and that just feels really good. It just feels really um, like a good place to be uh, relating in that way. Um yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So I love that I have this Thank great community, you so and I love that I I get to be so um, uh, true true to my core values. Um, mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, JD, thank you so much for being so transparent about your life and your work, and, mm. and just being so articulate about all these concepts. And I wish you so much luck with the expansion of your organization and. Um, let's Thank conquer you. the world with positive, healthy, <laughs> scientific-based sex information. 
Um, totally. Before we oh, end, oh, that's another thing. I, I, want, I do actually also work yeah, at the San Francisco Sex Information Hotline, which is a free hotline. Uh-huh. People can call anonymously, and we answer questions about human sexuality um, every night between 6 and 9. So that's another cool thing I do. Um, so SFISI, San Francisco Sex Information, is another cool place to get good sex ed info. Okay, great. And in addition to that, do you want to tell our listeners any anything else about um, – what you do, how people can find you, um, anything else you want to offer our listeners? Well, okay. So you can go to my website, superstarhealtheducation.com, and there you can book a workshop. Um, There's also a link there where you can contact me directly if you would like uh, counseling or coaching or for me to develop a workshop for your community. Um, I work with homeschools. I work in nonprofit organizations. so I do curriculum development for uh, public and private schools. So there's some opportunity there um, if people are interested. And I have this new idea, but I haven't done it yet. That <laughs> it's I want to make a punch card for getting like, you know, 10 five-minute conversations about whatever you want to know. Because I have all these friends who call me all the time. They're like, JD, can I ask you this question? I want to know about these STDs. Like, what about blah? Or can I ask you this question? Is it normal that my nipple is like blah, blah, blah? And I want to be able to, <laughs> like, sell, like, a 10-punch card of, like, five-minute or 10-minute, you know, c- consultations um, to answer to short, sweet, you know, uh, answers. So I'm hoping I can actually launch that because – I think people would really use it, being that I get these conversations yeah, all that's the time. A idea. Um, mm-hmm. So look for Excellent that. Look idea. for Superstar Health Education, you know, five-minute consult punch cards. I'm going to try to get that out into the world as soon as possible. Perfect. Okay, J.D., well, thanks again so much for being on the show. Um, maybe I'll have you back on a panel to talk about consent or something like that down the road. Ooh. Um, so I Really appreciate uh, having your wisdom out there in the world. So best of luck to you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Sumati, for doing an awesome radio show. Appreciate you. Okay, hon. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>